Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models, episode 268. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today I am pleased to be joined by Edwin Ocasio, better known to everyone as Juni Ocasio. Juni, how's it going, buddy? How you doing, man? Thanks for having me on. I I just, uh, pretty awesome to be back. I am happy to have you here, man. Now, we po- talked about booking you for a while and having you on, but something has happened in the, <laughs> in the recent past year that's worth mentioning. Congrats on winning your first world championship, buddy. That's a big one. Oh, man. Thank you so much. A lot of hard work and uh, just been a crazy year. Um, I think I'm still getting used to always chasing that title. And, and now I have the title of like world champion. So I gotta just get used to that, you know? <laughs> so now you can just take your foot off the gas and be lazy for the rest of your life, right? There's no need to do anything else. That's right. I retired, you know? No, no. I'm in it for a legacy. So uh, yeah, it's gonna be, I had to rejuggle my goals and I'm still like working on a couple and seeing how I do things. But yeah, you really don't know what you want to do till you get it. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, what next? <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm at right now. But uh, it's not in me to not work hard. So I have to just get the next level stuff, you know? Absolutely. Always good to be looking at the next level too. Well, hey, for those who did miss the memo, why don't you give yourself a quick intro? Tell everyone who you are and uh, why 2023 was such a big year for you. Well, my name is Edwin Junio Casio. Like, like you said earlier, most people call me Junior Ocasio. Um, fairly any people call me Edwin. Probably only call me Edwin because it comes up in my actual competition sometimes. I'm a black belt on the Marilla Santana, and I have so many accolades. But uh, 2023 was the year I won my major accolades, meaning like I've won everything you could possibly imagine. I have instructionals. I have fight to win champion. I've fought on the biggest stages in the world since like 2017. And I've won pretty much everything I've touched except for majors, meaning like the big competitions, I would always fall um, hitting third place literally since like 2019, like always third place, always third place. And if you know anything and you're a jiu-jitsu practitioner, you know, at some point your dream might be to be a world champion and very few get to reach that dream. And I was able to become that world champion this year, but not only that, I was able to win all three majors in a row back to back, which is a feat not many people can do or, or have done. And I'm just super kind of in awe that we got it all done this year. Uh, it's just been a lot of work that's been gone into that. So 2023 is one of those years where like, I think I only lost two matches and there were matches I really didn't want to fight in. And anything I really put my mind to are like all my major goals that I put on the, on that calendar or on that fridge in, in my apartment. Um, we, we made it happen and it's honestly still a little surreal, you know? Yeah, well, huge congratulations to you, man. That is a, just a massive series of accomplishments. Now, I have to ask before we launch into the topic today, is there anything that you can attribute to that massive run of success you had in 2023? Was there anything that you changed in your camp or in how you train or in your mindset that you think led to, to that run? Or was this just the natural culmination of the trajectory that you were already on? I think it was a natural trajectory after we've changed a lot of things. I definitely changed a lot of things in the structure of my training. I, I was training very smart the last couple of years, but this last 2023, I really embraced the mental work and really was able to level up. I mean, I've been working on my mental health for probably like really hard, like really like not casually working on it, like really like being like, you know, effort into mental work and, and mental health for since like 2021. 
And so like 2023 was a year where I was in a much different place in my life. And uh, I was able to use all the techniques I learned throughout all the years from all the mental coaches. And I was able to change also, I was also to change some of the structure of the training and up the situational training so that I got so used to competing in the, a rule set that I knew all the rules and I knew that all the stuff that would normally annoy me, something as simple as like keeping base the whole entire training session, um, that we made that a normal thing. And so like it didn't affect me when I went to go train to fight. So I feel like it's like a mixture of a bunch of things, but it's something that we changed, but we also kept doing it and we kept evolving that idea. So like with the mental health, we kept working on it and then we kept evolving. Yeah, same thing with the training, just training the same way, but always like doing something a little bit different, a little bit more smarter, because as they say, right, like if you want new results, you need a new habit and you can't keep doing the same thing. So I really embrace that. One of the biggest changes I think that uh, attributed to me performing so, so well was I was able to really dive into the weight cut process as far as like being very healthy about the weight cut process. I've in 2022, I like the the end of 2022, like uh, halfway through the gi season, I was able to get a nutritionist for weight sports and um, cutting and wrestling. And that really played a major role. I learned a lot about nutrition. I learned about like what was healthier, what I needed, and a lot about my food, portions, carbs, kind of all that stuff. And just making the weight the really healthy, like super healthy. So when I was out there, um, I would perform at peak performance. Now there's some hiccups with this process as you're getting used to it and you're trusting a process and giving up your old habits. And so it was hard. Um, I even missed weight two times during this process, which I never have done in my life. Um, but doing that made it so effective and so perfect that I would come out every fight just like as if I was fresh every single fight. And so that was um, one of the biggest things. And Second biggest thing I must say is I took the foot off the gas in the final two weeks preparing for the competition, meaning I would not do as much. I would go to sleep a lot earlier. I would rest a little bit more. I would train really, really hard for that hour and a half, but then I shut it down and I wouldn't overtrain anymore. And I'd rest and I'd let my body heal. And because we had good nutrition and we, had, we were not like killing yourself to make weight anymore. We were, you know, I was performing really well. So there's a lot there. And I'm sorry, that was a long, long, long answer. But um, it's just so many things that went into like a pot that we stirred together to get the, that those results, you know? So yeah, so I feel like those were the things that made the 23 run so special. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing. For those who don't know, on uh, BJJ Mental Models Premium, we have a peak performance podcast called The Highest Levels, hosted by Emily Kwok and Joe Hannon. And uh, you were interviewed on there recently, Junie, uh, before you won the world championship, actually, by Emily. And I know she unpacked a lot of stuff with you about strategies for achieving peak performance. And I definitely recommend people give that a listen if they haven't already. But something I wanted to unpack here today with you was something you actually mentioned on that podcast with Emily, which is you talked about how it's important not to over-optimize your training because at some point, no matter how much you try to optimize, you have to just ultimately get on the mats and do it. And I think that this is a problem that a lot of people, myself included, deal with in jiu-jitsu. You know, especially anyone who's kind of plugged into the jiu-jitsu meta. We're always looking for new training methods and new strategies. And it's easy to kind of get lost in the sauce because you're just trying to chase every new trend that comes up. And sometimes people do forget that ultimately there's no substitute for just doing the work. I'd want to hear maybe your thoughts on this as someone who did just put a, a lot of thought into re-optimizing all of your training methods. What are your thoughts on over-optimizing and is that a problem that that you've seen people run into and what are the solutions to such a problem? I mean, I think you nailed it right there, like over-optimize and sometimes under-optimizing, you know, to have a perfect secret ingredient to your training is important. I think the main thing for me is I'm very, very big on the work. Like I'm like super big on the work. Like you have to do the work. You have to show up. I think a lot of people these days, they want to do shortcuts. And like, you know, I talked to this about this last time is that like, you know, a lot of the purple belts and blue belts these days, I don't know, man, I came up through Marilla Santana. So in the, my, like, I think I started like 22 years old or 23 and, you know, Marilla put me through rigorous training and really like 
built my mental fortitude up as well as being having competition experience like 24-7. I think that showing up and doing the work and getting that experience in competition all the time and also like going through some really hard training that really fatigues you, not so much like technically, but like physically and mentally, make sure you can handle that. Because a lot of people can handle hard training for like a day, for like a month, for like two months, for like a year, for like two years and three years. What about year five, year six, year 10, year 12? You know, I've seen a lot of people burn out. I mean, I burnt out like 20 times, but I was able to keep pushing through. And some people burn out and they quit. And so like, it's important to remember, like you need a in my opinion, you need a hard balance, you know, like you need a good balance. Now balance for what I've learned through my experience, balance for everyone is different. You, nobody's the same. I love high volume training. I train a lot more than a lot of my other teammates. I constantly train. I actually have to flex myself not to train. Like if I was to do any more training sessions, I would literally just be like dead every day. I love volumes of training. One is that like, I actually love training. Um, So like for me, it works really well. Some of my teammates, they do very well. They're very established and they don't train as much as me. They actually take a lot of days off for competition, which, which I don't. I'm like very heavy about doing one session a day, no matter what, even if I'm competing, but controlling that tempo and being smart about how we do things. Like if you're doing well with your nutrition and you do training every day, there should be no reason why you can't train every day, right? But you also have to make sure that you change the tempo for certain training sessions. So like you can't, in my opinion, you can't have like the same training session be like 100 24 seven, because then you give no room for growth. You don't really grow when you're fighting at 100%. You grow when you're fighting at more like 50, 60. You need a good balance there. And I, I think these days, a lot of people, they get away with like being, me and I talked about this again, being on super fights and not going through the circuit. You know, like when I was coming up, there's no super fights. So you had to go to the tournament and your tournament, Mike, you know, my weekend of a tournament would be like every weekend would be a tournament and we'd have I have like six fights, seven fights, eight fights in one day. And then I'd go next weekend again and again and again and again. And now these days people go and they fight one match and they don't really get that mat time. They don't get the experience of fighting in a tournament. So now you see less and less good guys coming up to win like tournament style stuff because they don't really have that experience of get that mat time throughout the time frame. So I think being optimized is like a is a hard topic because everyone always wants to have the fad of like, you know, like this is what this person is doing. Well, to a certain degree, I think there needs to be balance. You need to actually do the work. You need to figure out what's the schedule that works for you that you can commit to, that you could constantly do, right? Over and over and over again. And then we have to train smart. We have to know that we're doing some hard training, just rounds where we're not really thinking. And then we have to do very like specific training where we're thinking. And we have to do like a flow training where we're kind of thinking, but not thinking. There's, there's just different styles of, of how you train. and You need to incorporate all those styles. And then of course, uh, you know, being there actually every day to do the work, even on days, some days where you don't really feel like you're, you don't want to train. A lot of these, in my opinion, uh, a lot of people are very lazy. They only want to do stuff when they feel good and they feel rested. And that's just not how life works, you know? So for me, uh, there's a lot, a lot of days I don't, I'm tired and I just, you know, I don't even think about it. I don't even make it a thing. I just get up and I go, I go in and I go train. Got it. Now, where do you land in terms of the importance of things like study? One of the things about jujitsu in the last 10 years or so is there's been just this never ending explosion of new content that's out there. I mean, we're part of that, right? There, there's no shortage of jujitsu content that you can get out there and you could wind up easily making jujitsu study basically a full-time job at this point. And so this is a, I know a stressor that a lot of athletes and hobbyists as well face, which is just that it feels like no matter how much you've taken the time to learn, it's just never enough. And so I know people who spend just a massive amount of time studying the meta, but I wonder to some extent, is there diminishing returns in that? Is there a point where, you know, watching that 20th instructional is just not going to help you? I would love to know at at a high level comp, what do you do when it comes to that kind of study? Is that something that you invest your time in or do you focus more on just getting the reps in and getting to the mat to get the work done? No, actually I, I study a lot. I do study. I have a particular way I like to study. I don't really love to just absorb a full instructional and then just watch it and then try to go emulate their stuff. 
Um, that's false because when it comes to instructionals, when I, when I study, I look for more of like, for me, it's like I study and I look for like three things in the whole thing, right? Like, like I could watch a whole Mikey Misameki instructional and go through six hours of content just to find like four things, you know, five things that'll be worth it for me because it'll be something that is like a concept thing or something that they, maybe they do different, a little differently. But to say, sit there and say, like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to emulate this exactly the way this is. And I'm going to do this exactly the way it goes. It's just different. You're not that person. So like, I could teach you a heel hook and I could teach you like how to do it in instructional, like the exact way I do it. But you're never going to do it like me because I have my own style of heel hooking. You might have different leg dexterity. You might have flexibility. You might have, you know, mobility issues. You might have to do things. But if you can take the breaking mechanic concept and you can use the entry and innovate your own entry, that's a different thing, right? So like, that's a kind of where I, I like take studying. I love to study in my mind in this day and age, I only study resourceful content. So people I know that know either they have experience doing the technique and they they do it at a high level, or they're a very good instructor that pays attention to what's really going to work in a high level competition versus the thing that's going to work one time against a high level person and then it'll never work again. So there's like the differences between those. Now, a problem here that we have is like people will like put up crazy shit, drills, all that stuff. No explanation as to like how it's going to work at a high level. And then also like, you know, you have to take into account, like when you're studying something, am I going to be able to pull this off against every single person that I see, not just a blue belt? Now, of course, in the beginning, you'll never be able to pull it off right away. I guess a black belt, but you'll be able to pull it off at a high level once you practice it a bunch of times and stuff. But my bigger thing that I do is I go and take every movement and I troubleshoot it. And I see how it works for me, if it works for me, if it works for my body type, if it works for me against somebody big, somebody small, somebody, you know, tall, long. So my studying process is a lot longer than other people's because I don't just go off of studying. I go off of studying a particular move. And so right now, for instance, I'm studying knee bars. I'm restudying knee bars and in an effort to try to get my leg entanglements to the next, even a further level of understanding. I went to certain sources and I was studying. I know almost everything that they do, but there's a grip or two that changes things. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I could take that idea. And I play with that grip for like the last two and a half weeks. I play with like one to three topics and I play with it, especially in the times I'm not competing. And I start to play with whatever it is and I start to pay attention and, and try to play around how to critique it, how to fix it to my style. Um, does it match me? Things like this. Some, some little little ideas to kind of innovate and like, take that style, that instructional and make it your own and infuse it into your game. And that is super important. You need to troubleshoot it after you study because you thinking that you're just going to study this the way this is. It's like me saying, I got to do Gordon Ryan stuff and I'm a light featherweight that fights in a light featherweight division that has so many different guards and so fast, so on point that it's going to work exactly like that. It's not going to work like that because they're too fast. Their guards are way more dynamic than the heavyweight weight class, you know? So like you have to take that into account, speed, timing, all that stuff. I think that there's a lot that goes into studying, but essentially you need to troubleshoot it once you learn it. And then once I learn the troubleshoot, I go back and I'll critique and take what's good, what was well with for me, and then I can put it into my own system. And then from my own system, I can make a whole new thing from it. Nice. Now, if I understand correctly, it sounds like what you're talking about is rather than just watching some instructional and trying to kind of copy paste every technique that you learn there and just do it exactly like it is there. It sounds like what you're proposing here more is to sort of deconstruct what actually makes those techniques work in a general sense. Look for the little details you might be missing and then try to rebuild that in your own game. Is that correct? Yes, yes, man. You said it so much better than me. But yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of what a lot of those ecological dynamics guys are talking about. This is something I think that they're onto, which is important for people to understand. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because the ecological approach is like just the term, but I don't really like follow their exact training because that is like the same thing as me doing a lot of stuff. But yes, their concepts of it is accurate. Yeah. Yeah. For those who missed the memo on that, I mean, we've had a lot of good conversations about eco recently, but the general idea that they propose is that 
you can't really ever just copy and paste knowledge out of someone else's brain and into yours that human brains don't work that way you can't just kind of like extract knowledge and just duplicate it directly from brain to brain you learn by doing things through the body and that direct perception is very much an important part of how we learn or so the eco guys propose and i think that anyone who's trained jujitsu for <laughs> more than a month has probably felt this problem where someone will show them a technique and they'll say oh just do these 10 steps it works for me and you try it and you find out doesn't work for me, right? It could be very frustrating because you'll look around the room and you might see other people doing it just perfectly and flawlessly. And then you try to do it and it just doesn't work the same. And it, it can feel like there's something wrong with you. But honestly, the big thing is just that, look, we've all got different bodies. We all have different ways that our bodies move. Or we can be sparring again, like you mentioned, with people of various body sizes. Jiu-jitsu at the end of the day is not some magical, mystical thing. It's just leverage right it's just biology and if your limbs for example are not long enough to do a certain move properly that's just always going to affect how effectively you can do it as opposed to someone who might be better suited for that and this can be frustrating for a lot of people because i think they go into things like instructionals hoping that they can basically study it like they used to cram in high school where they just try to memorize everything and then go out there and just do it. And then, like you said, they're kind of disappointed that they weren't able to just copy and paste Mikey Musumeci's entire game simply by watching his instructionals. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, like, like you can't, you're not going to be able to bolo exactly like Mikey right in the beginning because you need experience. You need, you need years of doing it 24-7. So it's just going to be very hard to do that. Like, for instance, like, I'm really, really, really good at K-Guard. You could throw K-Guard at me all day, but like, I'm really good at K-Guard. But I also do it in a different manner. And like, I've been doing it for a while now and I've troubleshooted it and I know my, and I have my own philosophies for that move, you know? So there's a really big thing that's important to state. There's like this difference, right? There's like gi-esque jujitsu where the gi is the cloth that's connected to the, the bone structure. So like a lot of gi competitors are really good at guard retention because of the cloth they're so used to. So their guard retention is really on point. And then you have no gi structured guard retention which is pure bone retention that needs to be respected because it's the pure skeleton so like you're not really going off of like a cloth in my experience or my philosophy or my idea is that you need both styles together to make a really good hybrid guard so like you need to have there's the structure of the skeleton and then there's almost this the move's gonna work if you do this or this because it's debated on their structure nine eight times out of ten and then there's the two times out of ten that i always tell my students is that there's gray area the gray area is somebody's special ability it's somebody's ability to break those rules because that's kind of what they do with their body something that we can't obtain for so for every move i can say like the person can only do this this and this if they have this done correctly or like controlling this um breaking mechanic but there's always this one to two like two times out of 10 where, you know, the person has gray area where there's like, out of all those things you've memorized, they do something you don't know because they're good at it. Or maybe they do the wrong thing, but they get away with it with athleticism, stuff like this. I am so glad you brought that up, man, because this is something <laughs> I have beat myself up many times over my jujitsu journey. Uh, having seen this myself, where I will be doing things and I'll feel like, man, I'm doing this wrong because no one else does it this way. No one taught me to do it this way. I've just made some little tweaks that seem to work for me. And maybe other people can't even duplicate it. Maybe I try teaching it to other people and it just doesn't work for them. But for me, it does. And there is that X factor to jujitsu. So much of jujitsu is about personal expression and what you kind of want your style of jujitsu to be, especially as you get deeper into your journey, everyone kind of starts putting their own stamp on things and developing their own little unique bits. And you bring up this great point about how everyone is an outlier at something. I mean, yes, if you look at kind of the broad general population for any one specific weird oddity, there might be just a small percentage of people who are good at it. I mean, like Ezekiel chokes in Nogi, right? Maybe only 1% or less of the general jiu-jitsu population can even do those effectively. So it's not that particular technique isn't something you need to always be super concerned about. But in the broad scheme of things, everyone is going to be in that 1% of something. Everyone's going to have at least one thing they do that they can make work 
that is just totally weird and abnormal. I mean, I I, I kind of reminded of uh, Browley Oestima kind of busting onto the scene with a bunch of inverted triangles, which was so weird at the time that someone would do something like that. So there's always going to be something. And I spent a lot of my jujitsu journey avoiding that and running from that because I would be doing weird things and no one else would do them. And my thought was, well, I must be doing these things wrong then because no one else is doing it. But what I kind of realized at some point is, look, we all just express jujitsu differently. We have different bodies. Some things will simply work for you that won't work for other people. Something might be terrible jujitsu for someone else, but if you can make it work, then it's not really terrible, right? It's just one of the unique things about your game. I couldn't say it any better. Like, it reminds me of, like, I think it was Guy Mendes versus, I think it was Cobrinha. And I think it was like you underhooked the leg and he, the person's not really supposed to be able to Delaheva hook you once you underhook their leg. And he was able to do it every single time. It was just like shows you that like most people can't do that. But some people like, you know, they're more flexible. They have athletic backgrounds. They used to wrestle. They used to do something there. They have unbelievable power. Um, there, there's so many variables. Like for instance, like I fall from the top a lot on leg entanglements, but it's technically a positionally wrong thing to do unless you're in a certain position to fall for them. But it's kind of like my superpower. So like I respect the position, but I always teach my students, you know, this is something I do, but you're playing with fire. And like, if you fall down, you know, like you're giving up position and potentially could cost you a match, could cost you this, but you have to have faith that, you know, like if you're going to do it, it might be your thing. So if you're going to do it, I'm going to teach you the right way to do it. But I don't recommend you guys doing this because I know that you know, it'd be dumb to fall down for things, but I'm a finisher and I like, I like getting subs and I have a very innovative style. So it's like, even also the Juni lock, I came up with the structure based counter to outside heel hook is something that people end up hurting their legs with, or they, they can only hit it in one motion. I can hit it like 20,000 ways. And it's just so crazy because it's kind of tailored to me. And so, like, you know, it's just different for everybody. I think one of the main things though, when you express this to students or you're teaching students or your your students yourself you want to make sure if you have good sound guard retention like your guard retention is good your understanding of guard retention whether it's gi or no gi is really good and you have good offense uh, once you understand and know what you're doing you're allowed to break the rules a little bit so that's important because you know structure base like this this and this okay well now i know that i got all this but i'm actually really good at this one thing so i can break the rule here and that's that's important to know yeah absolutely the whole bit about breaking the rules is a lesson i took way too long to learn i spent so much of my early journey trying to just duplicate what other people were doing exactly but that is part of the journey of growth and mastery and innovation at some point you have to look at what other people are doing and figure out how to add your own stamp on things or how to tailor things so that it's more optimal for you. This happens to me all the time where I will, I'll learn a technique from someone else and I just can't make it work by myself. But like you said, I troubleshoot it. I make a few adjustments and maybe I find something that I can do that makes it work. A lot of the time it's something that no one else will do. You brought up, you know, adjusting grips. Maybe I try something with a slightly different grip than everyone else does. And then suddenly it just makes the position or technique or situation way more viable for me than it had ever been before. And it always feels weird because it feels like you're cheating or you're just making shit up. And we spend so much of our early jujitsu journey just being told what to do by people. <laughs> it's a bit of a system shock when you realize, oh, now I I actually have to think for myself and build my own techniques. I think it's nice to follow a blueprint. It's nice to follow someone that you have. And not everybody has. I was very lucky in my journey to find an instructor that had the experience that's been teaching for years on end and, and been a black for like 20 years and like, you know, was able to mold me and guide me and see things and innovate and do stuff. And so I was very lucky. But for people who are younger, man, they have so much knowledge. They can take like, you could look at all the top guys. See how they do the guard retention? It's fairly similar. There's just little adjustments to how they do. Like I, how I do guard retention is very similar and praises my instructor, but it also has my own style of the guard retention that I developed through using two systems and blending them together. So like while it still plays homage to my instructor, you know, my knee cuts, my passing, my leg entanglements, there's a lot of me that it's like me learning leg entanglements from Eddie Cummings. I'm never going to be Eddie Cummings. I'm not Eddie Cummings. Eddie Cummings is amazing. He has like these 
crazy dexterity in his legs, his strength, his knowledge, his everything. But I'm really good because I'm Jimmy. You know, like my me, I have my own style of leg entanglements that is a little different. It's a little bit more mobile. It infuses my game so that I don't get stuck in one leg entanglement and I can continu- continually go from positioning to leg entanglements. So there's just different styles of the stuff and it's important to embrace that but it's also important to remember while you're doing the gray areas while you're finding your superpower that you have respect for positioning and good guard retention a lot of people skip that part so they have a superpower but if their superpower doesn't work and they don't have nothing else they fall down they fall apart and so that's super important to remember too is that if you still need really good fundamentals before you go crazy with your superpower because without that if it does fail and you do your superpower and it doesn't work on somebody right so you're really good at this one foot lock really good and it doesn't work it doesn't work it doesn't work and all of a sudden that's it you did that and now the person beat you up after that it's because you didn't have the fundamentals to back that special move up so i think while everything is awesome to be your own you know troubleshoot and do all the stuff i think it's very important to be fundamentally sound Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, even Superman had kryptonite as a weakness. We all do have weaknesses here and there. And although it's great to have a superpower, you know, ultimately, while you that might allow you to achieve amazing things, it's probably going to be your weaknesses that ultimately dictate what your ceiling is. If you've got really exploitable weaknesses in your game, it doesn't matter how good you are at something else if someone can just exploit that weakness on you. Yeah, if you're okay, so like if you're really, really, really good at the Della Hiva, really, really good at the Della Hiva. But then I say like, man, I'm never going to let this kid get to Della Hiva. And then you don't get to Della Hiva and that's it. You're done. Your game's over. Your jiu-jitsu's over. You didn't do this. And that's when things start to get like iffy and you start to like, you know, oh, really good at this thing. But if I get swept on my back, I'm not that great at pass. I'm getting past or like stopping the person from passing Little things are make a difference and you need to be well-rounded at this day and age. Like you can't just rely on just one thing, but you should have a funnel. So like when you're good at fundamentals, you have a nice funnel. So it funnels you back to your superpower always. Yeah, that's a great element of strategy and game planning is knowing what your strengths are, but not just expecting that you'll land in those situations, but deliberately structuring your entire jujitsu to make sure you get to those situations. Lachlan Giles has talked about this on the podcast before, about how when you're setting up sequences in your mind about what you want your jujitsu to look like and how to get from point A to point B, you have to make sure that those transitions actually make sense and that you have a way to do it. Having an amazing scissor sweep isn't going to do you any good unless you can get to the position and the situation where you would do such a technique anyway. So making sure that your game is coherent and cohesive and that step A takes you to step B, that is a very important part of building your strategy and always making sure that your strategy takes you to the best possible situation for yourself. Which again, like you said, that might be different from person to person. I mean, for me, if I'm on top in your guard, I'm probably going to try to get to some sort of headquarters position a lot of people, especially in the Gi, don't like doing that because they don't like the threat of Dela Hiva guard. But for me, that's just never been something that bothers me. So again, different strokes for different people, right? We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And it's important to, you know, like it's awesome you brought up Lachlan. I love Lachlan. He's a very good instructor and very good, knowledgeable in everything. But in logical sense, he, he knows how to innovate and also be structured with his jujitsu, which is important. And yeah, I can agree more with you with like, I'm a very fond believer. I love knowing more jiu-jitsu than everybody. I want to out jiu-jitsu everybody. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to win the fight. But like, I, I want to out jiu-jitsu you every single way. I want to know the answer for everything. That's normally just not how jiu-jitsu works. But the probability in training each position and throughout your time frame, knowing extensively what's going on with each position, how it works, the concepts behind each position is important, at least for me. And I think that's where I differentiate from a lot of other people's where I, I go down this route of trying to know everything and then restudying positions so that I stay up to date with little things that people are doing and and then that's how I stay kind of just going wherever the fight goes. So like I don't choose where the fight goes anymore. Like I, I play and of course I want to hit something that I want to hit, but I take what's available. It always funnels back, but that's only because I, I'd be able to study and have all these positions that I've troubleshooted throughout the you know, I don't know, 15 years I've been training, 15 or 13 years, something like that. And uh, it's something that people, I think, don't do anymore. Like they just study the limited resources. They like flashy moves. I can't tell you how many people I dream with have flashy moves and they're awesome. But again, without fundamentals, I just don't think it's going to work. 
Now, this kind of ties back to our core topic here, which is how do you call your shots when it comes to deciding what to study here? You talked about the importance of study, but it's also easy to go down this rabbit hole where you wind up wasting a ton of your time studying stuff that ultimately isn't really great content or it's just not great content for you. And you talked about how the goal here is to find the right content for yourself and then to study through that to isolate the main lessons that are applicable to you and to try to integrate those into your game. How do you do that though? Because for a lot of people, the challenge with anything like this is where do I even start? I mean, in a world where any of us can go to BJJ Fanatics and there's thousands of instructionals there just at your fingertips, how do you know where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck when you choose to study something? See, this is the funny part is that like, I really didn't study till like COVID hit. Like I didn't study anything. I just did jujitsu and trained and I followed my instructor's lead and whatever it is. So there wasn't nothing to study that much before 2020. 2020 is when it really exploded with like the instructionals. There wasn't that many instructionals in 2019. It wasn't that many. There was like nothing in 2017. I came up and there was no instructionals. You didn't have to, you had to go train with the person. So when I learned leg locks, I learned it from the guy, you know, I didn't learn it from instructionals, you know? So it's hard these days to say that because like when I started studying, I was already a black belt. And because I was already a black belt, I just went back and said, I'm doing like a thousand things wrong, I feel like, and I want to go back and I want to study and I want to restructure and really put effort into my training. And I was able to like kind of restudy everything about jujitsu. Like, I mean, like every position, I mean, like I'm, I may be a little bit over the edge on how much I wanted to get better that I was willing to like go through my sources and just continually break down my game and game and see the structure and go. But it changed the way I did jujitsu and the way I thought and the way the rabbit hole I went down. And fuck, if I was a younger man, I wish that was at my fingertips. Now we're in a day and age where they have all this at their fingertips. So it's kind of like a downside is that you have too much, right? Like you have too many sources. I think that the first thing you should do is find credible sources. Sources that one, not that you're just fans of, like a lot of people are fans this is where we differentiate people are fans of like people who are being athletic and they just going from position to position and just like jumping around and doing crazy stuff i like technical battles of jujitsu even if it has explosion but it's technical i like seeing chess matches so i like seeing what like two guys are going to do and they both know the same stuff and like who's going to win that battle that that's important you know a lot of people don't want to see that so what they go do is the person hits one move in a tournament and then they go to that source and they hit, they want to just study that one move. What they don't realize is that like they're subsiding their whole knowledge just for that one move versus studying from a credible source where that person, okay, doesn't get passed often, has good passing skills, and this person can hit these moves the way it is, is going. So that means the person is doing the move from a base of core fundamentals. So when you see that, that's like, to me, called a credible source. I go to a source that's in competition that it's like, yeah, I don't care if the move is flashy and it's amazing and it looks fucking dope. If the person gets past every fight, only finishes with that move, his fights with that move. To me, that's not enough or credible. You know what I mean? So one credible source, that, that's my most important thing. Does the person have good jujitsu or, or overall game where it's, it's good? Or can this person hit this move? at a high level all the time. And if they don't hit it, do they immediately lose? So that's important too. That may, tells me if the move's just a fad move or if the move is actually effective. After that, I would go and I would study the spots that you feel like need, um, that you're most weakest in. So meaning like guard retention. Normally it's usually guard retention, stuff like that. And once you're able to do those things, then you start applying offense, right? So for me, like having good guard retention is super important. And then being able to attack off that guard retention is important. So for me, that's like, I would personally study. I mean, I still do guard retention this day and age, but then, you know, you can progress to whatever you want to study, but just make sure that you're studying at some point. So fundamentals, half guard passing, half guard defense, butterfly passing, butterfly defense, you know, close guard, close guard defense. And, and this is going to take time. It's not going to be where like you hit it and you can study everything on point. Like at some point, everybody's brain has a limit of information that it can obtain. And at some point, overstudying will be too much for you. Like you'll, you'll cancel out the information you have, especially if you have your instructor helping you as well. Now I have a broad span of like, I can take a lot of information very quickly. And if I see it, I can, I have this thing where I, 
I see jujitsu in my fucking mind because I've been doing it so long that like when I think of a move, I sometimes don't need to actually do the move. I can put it in my brain and reframe it to see what structure I have. I know that sounds crazy. I know people like that sounds like I'm trying to like think highly of myself, but I just have this thing that I I like can play with that sometimes and just constantly dig in my brain to see, okay, I do this with this tension and this tension, but that works for me, but like it takes time to structure it. You just need like overstudying can also mess you up. So like a big thing is to make sure that you study the amount that you feel that you can obtain information and then, you know, let it sit with that information and don't switch topics too much. Like how much many topics is two topics? This is another thing, right? Like for other people who are studying for me, I study about up to three, four topics max for like three months. I don't switch topics and I'll keep studying that topic if I has not become part of my game yet, or if I can't understand it. Sometimes I have to study something, I got to go restudy it again. So like for me right now, it is restudying um, footlocks, all different types and going over half guard offense and half butterfly defense and offense. That's literally what I'm troubleshooting for like the last, I don't know, since for a while now, for like three, four months, I may change a thing or two, but like, I'm, I'm really trying to structure it, trying to try different people and people my size, heavier people. So it takes a while for you to like get this down before you're able to hit it at a high level with confidence. So like, you know, that's another thing is that, you know, people have to go back and sit down and, and be willing to do it. That's the problem is that this goes back to the beginning subject that we talked about. People don't like to do the work. And that's the work. That is the work. And so if you're only willing to put in a little bit of work and a little bit of troubleshooting, then you're not really going to get as good as you want to get. That's a great point. Uh, You know, people always listen to this podcast and they hear us advocating about things like concepts and mental models. And they assume that we must be implying that, well, you can learn jujitsu just by thinking about it. But that's never been the point, right? You can't learn jujitsu just by thinking about it, no matter how good you are at analytical thinking, at some point you just have to do the work. You know, if you gave me one person and you told me to train them just by having them think about jujitsu, and then you gave me another person and you had me train them just by practice without really explaining anything, the person who did the work is going to be better, right? Because there's no substitute for that. Even if your training methods are suboptimal, it's still better to have put in the time than to have just kind of lived in your head, but not actually got the time on the mat to train it. Exactly. Like you can think about jujitsu all day and, and we all do, and you can play in your head. That's fine. But at some point you have to get on the mat and you got to try to implement what you're doing. It's like chess players. Chess players think about their game 24 seven. They study, they do it all day, all day, but then they go play. You know what I mean? So like if they don't play, then you don't get certain things. You know what I mean? There's a lot that goes into jujitsu training. And this is the exterior of actual competition. In competition, there's a lot that goes on. In in the high-level competitions, in the major competitions, in the two-day competitions, where you have to be mental fortitude, there's a lot going on. So like you, it's not, that's more when your mind comes into play more than the actual skill. Yeah. It, um, you know, it reminds me of how just thinking about how coaches structure classes, they're always looking for a new optimal way to teach their students. That's another thing that I think you can run the risk of over-optimizing is how you coach. But at the end of the day, I've talked to some good coaches. And one of the things that, that I was told, which stood out to me was, look, as a coach, really the best thing that you can do for most of your students is help them maximize quality training time. Right. Make sure that when you structure your classes, you structure it so that everyone is getting a lot of good quality training time. If you're structuring your games or your drills so that only, you know, 10 percent of the class is actually training at any time, like a king of the hill or a shark tank thing, that's not necessarily optimal because you're not maximizing time. So what proves to be most important from a coaching standpoint is Things like making sure that your students are avoiding high-risk moves or avoiding the the risk of injury. Just trying to do things that will keep them engaged and active because as a coach, keeping your students consistent and giving them high-quality rounds and, and reps in practice, that's where you can really help them more than anything else. I couldn't agree more. I will implement some style of trainings, depends on the day, but the core training and the core basis of the way I like to structure things anyway is I really don't do that many drills as far as like I do drills, but I don't do that many warmups. I believe the warm up should be done before class um, on your own time. Um, I believe that 
you can want to get right to the techniques. We want to learn the techniques. We want to learn the concepts. So for instance, I've been teaching submissions um, to get my students to be more submission oriented and not just embrace position to really go for the submission based off of position. So talking about breaking mechanics, concepts, and you know, the scenarios, but essentially just going back to the concepts of it and then uh, letting them apply it to their passing that passing sequences or whatever sequences we went over previously. So we're integrating all the submissions from the previous curriculum. And one of the biggest things is doing situationals all the time. The whole first half of training is just situationals. It's just you practicing simple stuff, something as simple as to let a person keep their base, making sure they keep base, making sure they just don't fall over, making sure that they break grips and move, break grips and move, not just walking into the guard, having different stances in the guard, it being in a pat position, working out of certain positions. So there's just a lot of situations, a lot of specifics, and then it'll always be structured for, you know, situational, 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 two stand-up rounds, and then there's back to situational, or maybe the stand-up rounds are situational, and then we get maybe four to five rounds of free rolling after, or maybe we do the free rolling first, and then I have them all do the situations while they're tired and sweaty and they have to, you know, think and pay attention and keep base while they're sweaty. So like those things are, I think, more important. And then once in a while, um, depending on the day, we'll do three-person switch or with them we'll do King of the Hill in, in groups, but it won't be traditional King of the Hill. It'll be like stuff that they have to come out. Um, and then we'll do comp style rounds and, and comp style competition where they're kind of involved with each other and they're the refs and stuff like that. So it's a lot of stuff that goes into training for my class anyway that I implement. So I couldn't agree more with that. Um, it's making sure they are very entertained and, and, you know, there being there and being present. And one of the biggest things is that I want effort in my room. I don't care if you are a white belt. I don't care if you're like a new two belt, two week white belt. I want effort in my room always which is a lot of the times why I have a big room of people who absolutely love coming to train with me. But a lot of the newer people, sometimes they end up staying and they end up leaving because uh, you cannot hide from me. It is effort, effort, effort all the way. And it's important because you're paying for a service that you want to get better. In. And like my, my job as a coach, who, what I believe in is as a person who works really, really hard, I believe that at minimum, you control your effort. Effort is different for everybody, but it's your effort on the mat. You, how you do things, it's not really what you do, it's how you do them. You know, like, how do you do that? You know, like you come in, you train, you pay attention, you work in that situational. Even when we're there, I, we're our men out, I make people share rounds. I make sure that they're ingrained. Like they, they do not get to just hide in the corner, you know? So I couldn't agree more with, I don't do free rolling unless it's a day for fun or a day for recovery. So for instance, my class and a lot of my students, they help me with every single camp, um, especially like leading up to the two weeks where we switched the class more to a competition style. And it ended up being where they put so much effort. So at the end, we I gave them a week where they just had free rounds, where they can relax, they can drill, they can do situational stuff like this. It's important to have those times, but normally it's situational, situational, situational. That's how they grow. And that you, the growth that they've had is... Uh, so much better than letting them just free roll, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love free rolling. That's the, I guess, the fun part of jujitsu is why the sport gets so addicting. But it's also, especially at the early stages when you don't know any better, it's very easy to just kind of fall into the trap of doing the same thing over and over again. Because if it's a roll and the goal is to win, your inclination is going to be to do the things that are most likely to get you the win which means you're probably going to be playing your A game, which means you're probably not going to be developing new skills, right? So Exactly, yes. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk about effort, you know, where the mind goes is, of course, physical effort. Are you actually putting in the physical work? But there's also the mental side of effort as well. That is so important. I stress that all the time. Mental effort is not just the physical. Effort is like, I'm here, I'm paying attention, and I'm going to do my best job for myself and my teammates while I'm here. That's it. That's it. That doesn't mean you have to go ape shit and jump around and go faster or harder. That's not what I meant. I didn't mean that. So when I say effort, and I always stop to explain effort to my students, it's how you do a move. It's when you drill, how you drill, how you do something. That's important. 
because those little things you do is important. So I have a really big pet peeve when people drill and the person on top does like a square static dummy and they're just kind of like half-assed the drilling. Well, they're doing the disservice to you and your training partner. What are you doing? You're supposed to be in a good stance. You're supposed to give them a little bit of, you know, like movement so that they can feel it. So the drilling actually becomes accurate. Otherwise, it's just shitty drilling, you know? Yeah, yeah. Something those eco dudes talk about is um, the importance of making your training as similar to a live environment as possible, or at least in the context of how you can do that safely and repeatably, right? I mean, you can't have every round be a comp round, but in terms of the resistance that you're giving and receiving and the situation, you want to make it as similar to a live environment as possible, because otherwise you run the risk of teaching them the wrong thing. If you teach me how to do a knee cut against an unresisting Juni, that is not a realistic skill set for me, right? The realistic skill set is I, I need to know what kind of resistance you're going to give, get experienced with that and know how to handle that. There's no benefit in teaching someone a knee cut pass that they can only do against a grappling dummy. I a hundred percent agree. And like, a way that I like to do this is, I mean, I always try to put a little, little bit of movement, but like, for instance, I have a private that I'm now teaching and he's brand new and it's easy to teach him because he has no bad habits. And so like, it's super easy. Um, it's like a blessing when you get that, you know, we're teaching him the passing and I'm teaching him how to do a knee cut. And I'm teaching him like, you know, what would happen if this happened and stuff like this. But then at some point after like the first prize, you know, could you teach him a little bit? I now add in the person moving with resistance and continually move that. So while I do think that you should still always put movement and a little tension into everything so that the person can feel what it's like to actually do the move, in the beginning, it's hard for them to kind of get that, you know, especially if they're white belts. So the way I like to introduce it is I like to give them the move where it's kind of static and then once you do the move like a couple of times, we don't do static anymore. We start adding in the tensioning and then putting more and more tension and more tension. And then the person could troubleshoot from there what needs to be done. They kind of feel what they have to do. So I think there is a little bit of room for newbies, but for sure, I think if you have been doing jujitsu, you have a, you know, you've been there for a little bit, you should always be doing something with a little bit of tensioning, but that also requires your partner to be awake and be there and be mindful and putting effort into the training session. In my experience, a lot of people, you know, they come in for social time and that's great. I want there to be social time, but in my environment, I have a standard. And so my standard will be met no matter what, even if you are like not with it. My standard is a very minimum standard that I uphold by pro athletes and hobbyists alike. There's no difference. So with that standard in, everyone works together and they put a lot of effort on the mat and they all get better. Maybe people get better faster, slower, whatever, but they all get better. And people who don't want to put that effort in, they usually don't get better and they don't last long in my class. Yep. You bring up a good point too about people getting better at different rates. It gets very easy to look at the person in the lane next to you and get jealous because they seem to be getting better faster than you. But the thing people have to understand is, um, I mean, first of all, we all have different levels of commitment to jujitsu. If you are a hobbyist who's doing this for fun and you're putting in, you know, four hours a week, you just realistically shouldn't be expecting that you can outperform and outgrow someone who's doing this as a full-time job. I think that hobbyists sometimes beat themselves up way more than they should and I understand this, right? It is ultimately a, a competition sport, so it's easy to compare yourself to the person next to you. But look, you really, you should be measuring your output relative to your goals and your input. I mean, if you're getting pretty decent at jujitsu and you're spending two days a week doing it, that's a pretty good return, right? You're doing all right. If you want to be a world champion, then you're probably going to have to step up your training and make sacrifices elsewhere in your life. But for your goal of just being a hobbyist and being able to defend yourself on the street and perform in the gym, you know, you shouldn't beat yourself up too much if you're just not able to hang with people who do this as a job. Yeah, yeah. This is where it becomes funny, right? Because I have, so my girlfriend is actually a master one world champion. She's a master one world champion. She's a Pan American world champion and she's placed at the adults and, and also placed in other ones. But to even win master worlds is very hard. It's not like an easy thing to do, uh, contrary to what other people might think. I think that if you have a goal range and you come in, you have to be honest with what your goals are first. What are your goals, right? Because if your goals are just to come in and train and have a hobby, that's great. You're going to get better at your own rate. And no matter what, you're going to get better jujitsu. It's going to be awesome. You're going to work out. It's going to be cool. But if you have any competition desires, then you must put a lot more effort. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean you need to do what I do. 
I go above and beyond and, and really sacrifice every part of my life for jujitsu, like every part of my life. So I'm always busy while jujitsu, just always thinking about it, always doing my, you know, make sure my weights, make my weights on point, my food, my knowledge, my studying, my training methods, my teaching, everything's just on point. Like I just give everything of my life to it. But that's my job. It's something I chose. So it's a little different. But the person who's like maybe a hobbyist but wants to do decent at competition, I still teach in a place. So my whole thing is running a class that a hobbyist and a pro can get the most out of. It doesn't matter if you're a hobbyist or a pro, you're going to get the most out of it. That's the way I structure my class. So if you ever want to compete, you could compete because we do everything that a competitor should do in my class. But the extra things like, you know, that you need to sacrifice for like, you know, maybe like food and studying extra and doing maybe one or two more sessions than you want to do, stuff like that. Those are things that you have to kind of pull up and discuss. I usually think that the more people, like the true champions, like the people who win all the time or the people who win all the time or are on the podiums all the time, even if they don't win first, those are the people who are usually putting in a lot of work in 24-7. You know, those are the people that you're going to see be repeat champions. But for instance, my girlfriend trains six days a week, doesn't train more than six days a week. I think she does like one extra class, but she trains when she shows up. So she's always putting that effort in. She's always doing the situations, always studying, always listening, always paying attention and doing it. And she's able to not only go compete and win the adults, but also compete at masters and win the world championship, which is super hard to do. So I think there's a thing where like, you definitely, the hobby should not take it so crazy when they don't do as well as the people who've been doing it consistently for years on end. But also the person who is maybe a hobbyist slash competitor, I like to call them like, you know, the person in the gym who's going to help you prepare for the competition, but doesn't necessarily want to be like a world champion. You should also be able to grow and still be able to compete if you're doing a minimum of a consistency. So like doing two days a week, and you want to compete, it's very rare that you're just going to get those results. But if you're doing like, I'm a hobbyist, I come in, but I train and I sacrifice a certain portion of my life every morning for like five days a week, six days a week. Uh, and I put a lot of effort in year on end. You, you're going to be able to be really good, like really good. You know, it's just, just, just inevitable. You'll be really good. It just, you have to do it, train the right way in my experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it kind of ties into the the theme here, which is that when you are on a reduced training schedule, so if jujitsu is a hobby for you, it's actually in a lot of ways more important to pick your shots and to be smart with where you spend your time because your time is so much more limited. I mean, if you train two classes a week, and you just come in and turn your brain off, and you're kind of not really actively thinking about things, you're just doing what your coach tells you, you're probably not making maximal use of those two sessions a week, which is even worse because you only get two sessions a week. I mean, if you are a pro and you train six to eight hours a day every day, you could use the most dog shit training method there is, and you're still going to get pretty decent just due to the volume. When you're a hobbyist or a part-timer, it's actually, at least in my mind, even more important to be thoughtful about where you focus your time because you have so much less of it. Yeah, I can agree more. Like it's just it, me, it just I think that it's just so important to maximize and optimize that. You know, I keep going back to that theme. Like you know, you optimize your training to the best ability you can. And like you know, I wish I would have done this when I was younger, when I was at Purple Belt, when I would just come in and honestly, I would just do what my professor showed me, and I would just train hard. But I wasn't really paying attention to certain things. And I was very successful competing because obviously I've had the experience of competing and, and I loved training and the, the techniques I did learn, I studied over and over again. But as far as like, I feel like being there and really like pushing limits and being more effort, it's just a different time in my life where I wasn't, I gave it my all, but like I was dealing with things in my life that kind of kept me from, I feel like putting even more effort. And um, I always put, you talk to somebody who like, I say that, but I would put like, I, I would train all day, <laughs> but I think that now, especially like from 2020, especially even from 2021 and especially 2022 to 2023, I put in so much more effort than I thought possible. Like just, and it wasn't really just physical. It was just effort and everything. It was like making sure I just put so much effort into being in the room versus getting crazy about messing up a move or doing something crazy. It was just like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do my best that I can do for this session. And then I'm going to move to the next session. I'm going to best to do this session and, you know, I, some people don't like to write things down. I write everything down. Every single possibly imagine I write down. I know what I'm drilling, what day I'm drilling it, 
how many reps I need to drill that thing up. Or I really don't do reps. I do by like time. And then like, I know what workouts I'm doing on this day and this day. So like for the last two weeks, I've been doing recovery training since the world. And so I just been doing recovery workouts, but I know what recovery workout I'm doing each day. I know what recovery drills I'm doing. And then I know if it's a kind of like a free roll. Like, so for instance, well, I'm going to have free rolls for the whole 90 minutes of free rolling. But for me, I won't really be free rolling. I'll be doing situational in my head. So I'll purposely be putting myself in positions to get better and stuff like that. That's just me personally. But like, there's a time for free rolling and there's a time to make your time just the most optimized you could possibly make it. So for me, I'm over the top optimized. (laughs) Like I'm over the top. Like I'm crazy about everything, you know, like especially after winning worlds, I'm, I'm very like, okay, how do we get better? How do we make this even better? How do we get better, stronger, faster, even harder to beat submission rate goes up all this stuff within the next like five months so that when I come back out I am a different beast and different animal and so like that's what I'm currently calculating stuff like that now I mean just closing the loop here on all of this how do you know that you're not doing too much optimization how do you know that you're not overthinking things because of course I'm granted when you're at the literally the highest level any gain becomes much harder to get, right? Because the competition is so steep and the skill level is already so high. How would you know if you got to the point where you were over-optimizing as opposed to doing healthy optimization at that level? I think healthy optimization, it means more in tune with being right now in the present and putting more effort without worrying about winning and losing. You're a little bit better about optimizing your time because you're not so concerned with that. When you start going into a realm of like, you know, when you're a person who like for me, for instance, I win a lot more than I lose and I put myself in a lot of positions and I have hard rounds and stuff. But then when I start to get to, you'll start to notice when you'll start to unravel. And like, for me, my unraveling is like, I get really aggravated for somebody doing something that I feel is dumb. Or like, I get really upset that I didn't hit a move perfect, even though I won the whole round and tapped a guy out like 10 times, but I got really upset about this one thing. Or I I'm feel like my brain is taking too much information. I shut it down. I will stop studying for a day or two and I'll just go back into just being present and having fun. And that's how I kind of reset my brain to make sure that I don't overdo it because I tend to overdo it, especially towards competitions. And I actually have to dial back and not do anything. I think it's important to, you know, not to overdo it, but you have to have, a, you know, the fine lines of the balance. And it's hard because some people could take in more studying than others. So for me, I like to study in half hour blocks. So I study in the morning, half hour, 40 minutes max, and then I'll take that information and I'll go and I'll work my day. And then the next day I'll study 40 minutes and I'll do that. And then maybe towards the weekend, I won't study as much so that I don't go off the deep end, right? Or then may some weekends I will if I, if I feel like I'm, I'm in a good mental state for it. So I think that's by person, right? Because I know some people that can study day in and day out and not not get so burned out. It takes them a lot longer to get burnt out. So it, it really just depends on the person, but it's important to recognize in yourself when you're starting to unravel and what those signs are for you. For me, it's me getting like my mood swings and it triggers my anxiety and stuff like that. And as soon as I start to feel like I'm doing that, I need, it's time to shut it down. It's time to have some fun and just remember that we love jujitsu first and foremost, that we choose to do this and we're choosing to study and it's nobody's putting a gun to our head yeah well amazing chat juni thanks so much for coming by any closing thoughts before we tie this up anything you wanted to get to which we didn't touch on yet no i mean i man i feel like i can talk about any subject for hours on and um i didn't have anything particular in my head but no man i think that uh bjj mental models first off is like pretty dope podcast i actually had somebody come up to me and tell me about they heard my whole they came to my class and thought I was a little bit crazy about like how I train and how like, you know, like crazy I am. And then they would listen to your, the podcast. And then they came back and they had so much respect for me. It, it was actually really interesting that, that, uh, that happened like that. So I just happy to be back on it and hopefully I'll be back in the future. And I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much it. That's where my mind's at. <laughs> just really appreciate it to be back on. Well, thanks a lot, man, for all the kind words. If people want to follow you or check out your work, or if you've got any instructionals you want to promote, where can people find all of that stuff? Yeah, so all my instructionals are, enough for now, are going to be 
on BGA Fanatics. There's about 15 instructionals there. Um, I will have some new content coming out. I have a YouTube channel that you just look up Junior Ocasio and you will find my YouTube channel, which I will put clips there, vlogs there, techniques, free rolling, stuff like that. And that's completely free. So if you want to check that out, that's cool. Uh, you can also follow me on IG, Junior uh, underscore BJJ, where I post pretty much, you know, my workouts, some training, some comp footage and stuff like that. You can message me there if you want to get me for private or a seminar. Um, and then I got some future instructionals that I will be working on to try to get out in the first quarter of this year coming up, um, which I will probably one, maybe one will be on a BJ fanatics and then one will be on a new platform that's very well known. So I'm very happy to do that. So just be on the lookout. I will be redoing the, the Z lock instructional and I'll be coming out with the junior lock instructional, which is going to be really dope. And yeah, if you need to find me there, you could always email me. All my emails are located on my on both YouTube and everywhere that you can reach me, like IG and Twitter. I have a Twitter account. I don't run my Twitter account. So if you go on Twitter account, it's not me you're talking to. It's probably my girlfriend. And uh, you could always message me there too. Nice, nice. Well, as I always do, I will put all of those links in the show notes to make it easy for people to find you. I'll also put a link to our stuff bjjmentalmodels.com is where everything lives so pretty easy to find it all in one place main reason you'd want to go there is because there's hundreds of hours of educational jujitsu audio on concepts strategy tactics available for free in the public podcast feed of course there's also our newsletter which i definitely recommend people sign up to as well also free through the website um, and then the last thing is if you do want to kick it up to the next level BJJ Mental Models Premium is how we float the boat around here. All of that is also at the same website, bjjmentalmodels.com. Reason you'd want to sign up for that is because, number one, you get access to our entire course library. We've got over 100 hours of audio masterclasses on strategy, concepts, tactics, just a really interesting look at jiu-jitsu that you won't get through traditional instructionals. You also get access to all of our premium podcasts, including the one that uh, Junie was talking about with Emily. Uh, we've got a, an amazing premium podcast hosted by Emily Kwok and Joe Hannon. It's called The Highest Levels, kind of unpacking her studies and experiences with training and coaching peak performance. Really recommend that. And you also get direct rolling reviews. We've got a, an amazing black belt review team with literally some of the best black belts in the world available there to provide feedback on your sparring. People always talk about how it can be challenging to get value out of instructionals because there's just so much there and it's not tailored to you. It's just a, a total game changer when you see instructional material that is quite literally tailored around exactly what you need. Um, if you're not doing tape review and if you're not having someone break down and review your footage, I always definitely recommend giving that a try and premium is a great place to do that. So again, that and of course you also get access to our awesome community so you can chat with me in the group anytime. Again, all of that's at bjjmentalmodels.com if you're interested, as well as all of Junie's links as well. But Junie, man, thanks so much for coming by. I'm just so excited to see where you're going next. Um, 2023 was such a breakout year for you. It was amazing to see everything you accomplished. And again, man, let's have you back on the podcast at some point to check in next year and see how things go. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been a crazy year and I hope to break boundaries in the 2024. So uh, for sure, I'm just excited to see where that year goes. We'll see. Nice. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on you, man. Thanks a lot for coming by here and best of luck. Thank you, brother. Thanks, man. And thanks to the listeners too. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.